Uh, now, I've noticed the last few weeks, Tim, on the podcast, and meaning the last two episodes, which are the only two episodes that exist, I have given Mike, our audio engineer, some <clears throat> material to create a sort of uh, slightly embarrassing opening, because I can't quite get them right. This time, I'm going to nail it, so watch this. Uh, oh, so the, the this is, you're about to do, oh, sorry, sorry, I just interrupted your opening, carry on. Yeah, dude, I was perfect, that was going to be perfect, <laughs> I had it, now I don't know, now I'm, I've lost my confidence, all right, let me try again, all right, ready? <laughs> Go. Welcome to the Learning Conversation, this is a podcast brought to you by Nomadic Learning, I am Matt Burr, the co-founder and CEO of Nomadic Learning. And I'm Tim Sasha, the uh, co-founder and CEO of Nomadic Learning. And every week or so, it's more on the or so these days, uh, maybe we should go ahead and say every two weeks, we get together to talk about developments in the learning and development field, organizational learning, adult learning more broadly. And then we also each week talk about some kind of either news item or highlight some trend or issue that's happening either inside L&D or out where we open up um, kind of think about that trend and then in the second half of the podcast we kind of think about what the implications are for L&D and L&D professionals. Um, so this week we have a special guest uh, on the podcast as promised. We, we promised last week that we this would be the, that would be the last episode where it was just Tim and I and we have delivered on that. We're going to hear not not a huge amount, but we're going to hear from Josh Burson, who is the, the guru's guru in HR uh, and, and comes out of learning and is probably in the last 25 years has done more to shape thinking about L&D and learning in the enterprise than I would argue probably almost anyone else in the world. So we have an excerpt from an interview with him that we're going to discuss. Um, but before that, we're going to ha talk a little bit about the, the basic theme for this week. We're going to talk about um, productivity, employee engagement, and the role of learning in kind of uh, both of those things. What does it mean to drive productivity? How, how can learning contribute to a more engaged and active uh, workforce? And that's the theme of the conversation with, with Josh. But before we get into that, I think we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Slack. And some, there's been a few developments with Slack over the past few weeks and going to talk about that and use that as a kind of lead in to talk about some of those bigger issues around employee productivity. Um, does that sound, is that, is that what we're going to do, Tim? Sounds, that sound right? sounds perfect. And uh, where can people find us, Matthew, if they, uh, if they want to listen to this oh, podcast? Oh, yes. Where, where can they find us? Right. Well, they want to know more about Nomadic. Excellent where can they point. Find us? Yes. Really, yes. And I'm sure, as I'm sure you all will, you can learn more about us at nomadiclearning.com. And on Nomadic Learning, we have a link to our blog, which you can subscribe to, which we recommend. There is a great blog post up this week from one of our uh, engineers, actually. Uh, and if you want to see the breadth of thinking of Nomadic folks, it's an engineer who's taken into decidedly kind of humanities focused look on the history of learning and, and how nomadic fits into that uh we're also on twitter at at nomadic learn and you can find us in on linkedin by searching for nomadic learning and we recommend following us on all of those places how's that that's it mate well done people can find us all right yeah let's talk about slack yeah what what has slack done to warrant us talking about them well two two things in the last a few weeks um but i mean maybe just a little bit of background i think everyone knows who slack is but but just in case you don't they are a i guess you would call them an enterprise or organizational messaging app they are the leading 
certainly the leading startup in the kind of collaborative messaging new form of work, digital workplace space. Um, and they were really, I think they defined the space. They now are being trailed, you know, trailed or attacked by a couple of very large competitors, most importantly being Microsoft with an offering called Teams, but also Facebook and um, and a few others. But Slack is still kind of leading the pack, I think, in terms of defining this space of collaborative work, digital messaging, what that looks like. We, Nomadic, uh, lives on Slack. When The few times this year when Slack has gone down, the entire company has... Uh, been sort of sent into a spiraling state of confusion as we all tried to figure out how to email each other again and it didn't work very well. So, um, yeah, so that is Slack. And over the past few weeks, two two big developments. One is they formed a partnership with one of their own, their only real meaningful rival uh, in the startup space, um, Atlassian, which is a software company. Um, they had a rival product to Slack called HipChat. Um, and Slack, uh, I, I can't quite figure out exactly what it is, but basically they did a deal where uh, HipChat will no longer exist. Uh, and it's basically being merged into Slack and HipChat's customers are all going to be moved into Slack. And, and, and Atlassian, they did not get bought by Slack, but they're kind of exiting this messaging space and focusing on some of their more core developer type tools. So that's one thing. And that, that's just a sign that Slack, you know, basically is gearing up for this bigger fight that they have now with, with Microsoft primarily and, you know, sort of with Facebook. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. But, uh, but the other thing that happened last week, um, and this is not actually confirmed. This is, I guess, technically still a rumor, though it's widely reported in the business press that Slack raised at least another $400 million um, and at a valuation of about $7 billion, which is $2 billion higher than the valuation that they got last September when they uh, raised money from SoftBank. So they are uh, a true, true unicorn uh, many, many times over. And... Uh, you know, clearly they're showing despite that's a year and a half into Microsoft launch of Teams and they're still showing extraordinary growth. So I think Slack is definitely, we don't, we're not going to really talk about that news too much. I think we want to just talk more about what Slack means for the workplace and for the employees. But suffice it to say that those are two pieces of pretty strong evidence that Slack continues to lead the, lead the world in terms of growth of the growth of this type of platform and has certainly enough capital and uh, enough reach to, to be around for a long time and, and fight it out with. So, yeah, so Tim, I, I think we should just, I wanna talk about just kind of your own experience with Slack and our own experience with Slack to start with and just sort of what it meant from a productivity and engagement and collaboration standpoint for our own team when we first moved on to Slack and, and how you kind of think about that in terms of broader issues you know, what does that mean for the much bigger companies than ours, for the workforce overall, for the way we work in 2018? Well, uh, I'll come back. Yeah, that, that second question is, is kind of hard to answer. But to begin with, so from Nomadic's point of view, we started using Slack about pretty early on, I think, actually. We, we started using it about four years ago, I'd say. Yeah, probably as long as that. Um, yeah. And initially, it was just the development team. So it was just me and, and the, the few developers we had at the time. And it was actually one of our developers who kind of introduced it to us and suggested it be a tool that we use. Um, and we kind of used it in combination with a um, kind of task tracking tool for agile software development called Pivotal Tracker. And they have, and this is one of the kind of 
beauties of Slack, and this is where it really gets interesting with Slack, is that they have all these different applications that allow you to integrate the different tools that you use. So right from the get-go, they had that for particularly for software development, um, and they had integrations with um, with this pivotal tracker that we use for our agile software development, and um, you know, extraordinarily quickly, as soon as we adopted it, we stopped sending emails without any effort. You know, normally when you adopt these technologies and we've tried all kinds of different task management tools and all kinds of different project management tools, and normally it's an effort. It's difficult to get people to change the way they work. But with Slack, it was instant. There wasn't even like, now we're going to use Slack. Don't Please don't send me emails. Just if you want to get me, get me on Slack. It was just natural and organic and it happened instantly. Everyone was just on Slack. And I think that the integration with Pivotal from the software development team's perspective was critical to that because it allowed us in one place to see all the tasks that we needed to do who they were assigned to and whenever one of those tasks was updated or assigned to a new person within Pivotal you got an instant notification within Slack um, so again that that integration with the other tools that you use is is critical so then after about it was only about six months it was just a software team using it and then we rolled out across the company and again the, the same thing happened without having to encourage people. And, you know, there's some people in our company who have been in the workplace for, and I think me and Matt are not far off this, 20, 20 years, using email as our primary form of communication. And we pretty much <laughs> dropped email and adopted Slack within weeks. And everybody was on it and nobody wanted to use email and everybody just wanted to use Slack. And again, it was critical that other tools that we used, particularly or Google, all the Google Docs applications. So we use Google Docs, Google Sheets, we use Drive, and all the implications, all the integrations with with those tools was critical as well, um, and several other project management tools. Which interestingly, you know, various different ones we've used have, like Trello, for example, have fallen by the wayside, and we've we've adopted other ones but as even if those have kind of fallen away and we've tried other stuff for kind of broader project management things um slack has remained but at the initial adoption phase having it integrate with all those different tools was was critical so what it's become for nomadic now is it's just where work happens it's it's where we manage all our all our work it's where we stay up to date on all our projects it's where we communicate individually and as kind of divisions on working on certain projects and to a degree as an entire organization as well. And Slack allows us to organize our teams in, in, in those ways um, and organize communications around projects in a very efficient way and integrate all the different tools that we, we need to use um, in all the other work that we're doing. So yeah, it's become yeah central to the, to the way we work. And as Matt said, when it goes down, I cannot believe how slow email feels it feels ancient it feels like i can't get in touch with people it's actually one of the downsides to slack in from a kind of personal work-life balance thing is that it does kind of it gets addictive and you kind of you're always on it much more than you were always on email you know i could quite easily ignore email in the past but ignoring slack is pretty difficult um, particularly there's certain channels that you can kind of prioritize and you can have you know there's ways you can control your settings for different notifications and things but you know if i see a direct message from matt or something 
you know, it's rare I'm going to ignore that. And there's certain channels where I know the project is more urgent and I see a notification in there, I'm going to go have a look. So that's one of the kind of downsides to it actually is that you makes you feel more on at work all the time. But um, yeah, I think that's what it's become for Nomadic. Now, in terms of your second question, I think that's, I don't, Matt, Slack has been doing lots of different stuff for bigger organization. They have, is it called a network now? Uh, I forget what it's called. They have a whole terminology and language now for multi-large team deployments of Slack. Um, but um, I think that's where they initially hit a bump in the road because Slack can get very noisy as well. You know, there can be a, so much going on in there because people adopt it so much, it quickly becomes noisy. And in a smaller organization, it's relatively okay. But I can imagine in a big organization, it can become really noisy and really hard to find what you want. And I think that's where they've kind of set up these, you can have different, you can have an overall Slack application, but within Slack, you can switch between multiple different um, what do they call it at that level? It's not a team, is it? It's the workspaces. That's right. So you have multiple different workspaces, which I think is really the thing that allows them to um, scale within bigger organizations. Well, I think, yeah. And I think, I mean, well, that, that points to me one, like why, why it works, has worked so well. One of the things is that it, it creates this high, it, it creates an ability to create a hierarchy around work and to organize the communications around collaborative work in particular in a way that's much closer to the, to the way work actually happens in an organization like ours and in really, I think, almost every organization in the world, which is, you know, at any given time, you're actually working with a lot of different kind of teams on different things for different projects. And those teams might you know, a lot of those people, the same, I mean, for us, we're not a very large team. So all the same people reappear <laughs> on different projects, but it's a different mix of them. And there's a different level of priority for you as an individual. And so Slack, like it, the Slack allows you just first visually to start to make sense of your workday. If you're working on, you know, like for me, I'm working probably on anywhere from you know, I'm actively working on like eight to 12 projects at a different time. And then I'm kind of keeping an eye on maybe another 10 or 15. And then there's like an over, you know, bigger overall things happening. It's when you go back to email, one of the most immediate things you have to happen is like, it's just a complete jumbled mess where everything's together. And if you've gotten used to Slack where like those things are somewhat cordoned off and you know who you're dealing with in different places, for different types of projects it's just vastly vastly more efficient in terms of the way in terms of your attention what you're paying attention to at any given time and notifications which i mean you, you sort of mentioned the downside of notifications which is true that the you know slack becomes like like any other application on your phone with which is constantly seeking attention even at hours when it shouldn't be though they, they kind of do pretty good with the do not disturb stuff but but the but the hierarchy of notification is really good. Like you, it's much much. E if someone has something urgent internally for me, then it's definitely much easier to find get my attention to it on Slack than it would be on email. Like even if you put exclamation marks and big red whatever's uh, urgent signs on email, chances are I'm gonna possibly miss it because it's buried in a heap of yeah garbage uh, whereas slack you know finely tuned organizational sense the user interface is extremely intuitive it's extremely fast it's always up to date on whatever device as you move across from phone to computer which is mostly what i'm doing but occasionally to ipad or other things it's always there it's instantaneous and so you know to me it it 
it is it it they they started to they saw something about the way people were working collaboratively the intensity of that collaboration the sort of non this kind of sort of very fluid team structures that aren't reflected in organization charts necessarily where you're kind of always collaborating with a slightly different mix of people and slack built an entire hierarchy and way of organizing your workday that allowed you to make more sense of that and allowed you to pay attention to the right things at the right time uh, at least better than than you know certainly than email and and like you said we try we've tried we tried a hundred different things and they all went the same way which is like people would be excited about them for like a week or two then someone would drop off and then as soon as that person dropped off it became it started to and, and usually that person was maybe me and if I wasn't paying or you or whatever and then it would just die whereas slack like the exact opposite happened and has continued to happen right. so and i think um, you know this gets to our conversation and, and the clip that we're going to play from josh but i think that slack has become instead of a communication tool slack has become where just where we do work i don't view it as i'm going to do my emailing now because i need to go and talk to a few people and then i'm going to go use something else to do my work you know it's the first thing i do not just to communicate, but just like you say, to know what I'm going to do in a day or what I have to do. It's all in Slack, everything. So it's it's becomes where you do the work, not just the place where you use to communicate with people. And I think that's, you know, what email never could or never never could become, um, and Slack certainly is. So it's become the 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 communications component of collaborating with your team instead of becoming a separate application and a separate. Um, separate um, thing that you do it's just all integrated with the actual work that you're doing um, which you know and, and that's it it just makes everything so instant you know because I can be working on a particular issue on the interface and we're kind of um, I, I'm, wor I'm working on different new designs and all those designs are bouncing back and forward on Slack instantly. And I'm being able to ab able to share those in teams instantly. And because everyone's there and everyone gets drawn in and it's not so much, it's actually not so much that the communication is that different to email, you know, it's, it's a little faster, I guess. And it, yeah, email does feel a bit slow, but it's the fact that everybody's on there and I know they're on there. I can see they're on there and I can share something and get their feedback instantly the communication itself isn't that much faster than email but knowing you know someone may not be looking at their emails i'm not going to get their response for a while i know my team is there i can see when they're there and i can get all their feedback for example really instantly so that that kind of um ability to make the communication of your team happen as just a natural part of working on a particular project um is what makes slack so Value. Yeah, no, I agree. And for some uh, a team like ours, which is very virtual, very few of us are off are in the same physical space. It has created a level of both, uh, you know, connectivity, but also accountability and connectivity and speed that that, you know, actually, when we all get together, you notice like, you know, we all we, we have like a nice conversation for a couple hours, like it's really good to see each other. And then everybody kind of retreats to their corners and gets back on Slack so that yeah. they can actually keep working. Yeah. I would argue that like a virtual team on Slack is it could, could probably outperform in many ways a team in an open no, plan totally. office altogether because like Slack is, you know, if, if it's the right people and they know how to use it. And, you know, obviously there are all kinds of caveats to that. But and it's the right thing, yeah. you know, I think. I think um, if you have a really intense project, like being in the room together, like when I'm at the final phase of launching a feature on the platform, right? right? 
having everybody in the room would be really helpful where you can sit there, especially when you're actually deploying as well and you can kind of live live identify bugs and work on them together. Having that distance is actually not so great. But I, I do agree though, that when it's not that, that kind of thing, there's probably a few other scenarios. Just the general workday, I am definitely more productive virtually on Slack than I am kind of in person in the office. For and for sure. things like trying to push, push, push hard for a deadline and people are, so you have a writer who's giving you something, you're giving them feedback that's coming into Slack, then they're bringing it back. That What it does is it it's like you can come in and out of intense collaboration. So you can come into Slack, you can get the feedback, you can see what people are reacting. Then you can kind of shut it down for a second and be somewhere quiet and write because writing, you know, it's a hard thing to do in like an open plan. So uh, this is not an advertisement for Slack. Uh, we should say we have nothing to do with Slack, no, but we no do. No shares. We really love the Slack. Like but them. Yeah, yeah. If you want to give us <laughs> yeah. a few. We did not participate in the $7 billion no, round, no. unfortunately. Uh, I think that is a good segue to talk about uh, my interview last week and play this this clip from uh, Josh Burson, who was kind enough to sit down with us in, in near his home in California in the Bay Area last week. Um, and this is this is a part. This was a long, much longer interview, and we'll kind of hear clips from this and other stuff that we're working on with Josh later on. So today it's just a kind of a short preview, and it's part of a broader project that we'll have more to say about it later. But um, yeah, so just uh, before I play the clip, though, just for those of you who don't know, Josh Burson uh, is, you know, I mean, is it fair to say he's the leading thought leader in this in the HR space? I mean, is there is there I, is there I don't think I'm the right to person to ask because I can't really name anyone else. <laughs> no, I could name one or two. Well, there you go. But, <laughs> and I definitely know Josh. Even before we started work with him, I've always known Josh. I've known Josh for a long time like you know there aren't many other people that i could really say the same thing about um but yeah he, he for sure is i mean when josh starts talking about a particular trend in in hr or in learning as well um people listen you know it's it's almost like a it's both for maybe people right at the leading edge of doing stuff it's kind of a seal of approval it's like oh this is josh has written about it now this is really something um and I think for then for the kind of the everybody, you know, everybody else, it's kind of like, well, Bosch, Josh has mentioned it now. This is where I should be going to. So he really is kind of like a, both a kind of seal of approval on new innovations out there and also a kind of like a guarantee that this is, you know, this is something real for everybody else who's interested Agreed. in the HR Agreed. space. Yeah. So for yeah. I think Josh started a, an organization on his on his own first about. I think it was about 20 years ago now called Burson Associates, which started out as a research organization into the learning and development market and eventually became, you know, encompassed, you know, eventually all of HR, anything related to HR. It included a big event that became kind of one of, if not the most important event in the industry uh, every year. And then six years ago, that Burson and Associates was acquired by Deloitte. And so for the last six years, Josh has been at Deloitte and Burson, the organization has been has been part of Deloitte, um, where he where it, I think the impact grew a lot. And, and he was able to really kind of fine tune the authoring and also, you know, just I think it afforded him probably some more space to think and do research and so on. And then recently, just a few months ago, he retired from Deloitte um, and is now 
uh, in, in the middle of enjoying what seems to me in my limited interactions with him an extraordinarily active quote unquote retirement, which doesn't seem like very much of a retirement at all. But anyway, um, but I think that the defining just before we get to the clip, the defining feature of Josh's work that I think is that he's 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 a researcher first and he's he's extremely you know he he's gets deep 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 into these trends and he's looking at numbers and he has really an encyclopedic knowledge of uh you know things like the amount of spending going on and how how you know he has done an extraordinary job of kind of classifying a very bewildering array of hr technologies and making sense out of what would could be a very very confusing uh, landscape and he's it's always backed by you know strong solid research but on the other side he really is thinking very creatively and imaginatively about ultimately you know what who it is that HR serves and that is individuals inside organizations and he's he's I think probably a pioneer and and this seems obvious but it hasn't been in a lot of HR thinking and thinking about like how can HR better serve the human beings inside uh, these organizations and I think, uh, you know, that's probably, and I don't want to put emergency in his mouth, but that's probably where Josh's biggest focus is and kind of thinking about how HR can be a driver of improved and improved work life, better, you know, a better relationship between employers and employees, um, and overall just a kind of better, a better experience of, of life inside organizations and how HR can be a part of driving that. Yeah, so he, Josh and I talked for about two hours last week. We're going to play about a four-minute clip. Um, and and just kind of react to it. I think th you'll see in this clip, this was in the context of kind of talking about some bigger issues around productivity and employee engagement. Josh is really talking here about HR overall. So I think, Tim, what I'd like to do is once we've listened to this and kind of think about it a little bit, want to take, take the specific implications for L&D and for learning um, out of this kind of line of thinking that, that Josh is engaged in here. Um, so that first, the first voice you hear will be Josh's. And then I'll ask him a couple questions in there. So I'm going to go ahead and play the clip, and we will then talk about it. To me, productivity is engagement. Now, some people might think, well, you know, we have our employment engagement stuff that the HR people do and productivity stuff that the business people do. They're actually very much the same thing. Because if you look at, you know, most of the research that's been done on retention and engagement, um, yes, we want to have a nice work experience. Yes, we want to make a nice salary. Yes, we want to have good benefits. But the ultimate reason we stay at a company is because we like the work, because it feels meaningful, that it is a work that we're good at and we're progressing in our work and getting things done every day. And I think one of the most interesting um, pieces of research that brought this all together to me was Teresa Amabile's book, The Progress Principle, where she actually interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of employees in many, many different roles and asked them, looked at their job logs, what did they at the end of the day say went well? And in every case, it was making progress. It was doing, getting something done that day that they felt proud of, that helped a customer, helped another person in the company, helped somebody that they worked with. And so ultimately, I think one of the big mandates for HR is to think about productivity and what can we do to improve it or certainly not reduce it uh, with some of the stuff that we have to do in HR. And that's a, that's a very new role uh, for this function. Right, because I think historically, at least or stereotypically, you, you don't necessarily think of HR as removing barriers <laughs> in people's lives. No, I mean, that's the problem. 
is most of the HR work that's been done over the years has been putting stuff in the way of getting things done, giving us checklists, forms to fill out, systems to do, um, things that we actually say, well, you know, I'll do that when I have time, not because I need, because I want to do it. And the theme that I'm now using more and more in a lot of my research is HR and the flow of work. Can we somehow take this stuff that we believe people have to do because we believe it's important, and let's make sure it really is, and fit it into the flow of work so that it's productive and providing value as a talent strategy? Um, and that's a new challenge, but it's possible now. So that's, that's one of the things that's going on in the HR profession is rethinking where we deliver solutions and how we deliver solutions. Mm, I love that. I wonder, I mean, and I know you've talked, I've, I've seen in your writing, you've talked about this, that like marketers, for example, like five or six years ago, they started mapping the customer journey and they started looking at any point of friction and, they, and, and they've gotten much better at kind right. of like removing these things. And I feel like HR in the employee experience engagement, like discourse, trying to do something similar, but it's not always clear. At the, the marketing funnel is pretty clear. What, what yeah. happens at the end? You buy something. Well, right. what happens at the end of the HR funnel? Well, they don't quit or, or whatever. Right. I, we, it's right. not exactly clear. But productivity to me is a great metric of like kind of thinking about the experience, mapping employee experiences, but with that as a real endpoint in mind. Is that? Well, you know, yeah. absolutely. I mean, it's very analogous to marketing where you're trying to get somebody to buy something or use your product effectively. Um, and the paradigm that seems to be the most effective in HR at the moment is what are often called moments that matter. Um, episodes during the workday that trip us up. And we all have series of them, and we can identify what they are if we study and monitor and watch and use empathy at people at work. I was, I was reading an article the other day about insurance claim agents. When they go through the claims process, at the end of um, filling out the claim, they have to go through another process to check to see if the claim could be fraudulent. They have to log into five other systems, fill out a bunch of other forms, compare this to that. There's a gigantic productivity gap there. Now, I'm not saying that's an HR person's job, but I think an HR professional who's actually in the flow of work would see that and say, you know what, we need an onboarding program, we need an improvement in the business process, maybe the management needs to behave differently. Um, when you get a promotion, when you move, um, when you get a new project, when you join a new team, um, when you get a raise, when you have a baby, those are all things that happen at work <clears throat> that create either good periods or bad periods or stress. And I think um, what we're finding really right now is that high-performing HR organizations need to think about those transition periods and look at what they can do to reduce friction during those periods of time. All right, Mr. Burson, thank you. Right. So, very interesting. Yeah, so Tim, I think the, the first thing I wanted to kind of ask you um, and see what your impression was, because I think when I had first read about Josh's concept of HR and the flow of work, and he also talks about learning and the flow of work, I had had sort of a mixed reaction to it, and mm -hmm. I can explain that in a second. But I, w when you first hear that, like, does does that resonate with you? or like what? How do you, because I think a lot of what Josh is thinking about is kind of, this is a central concept in, in the way he's thinking about the future of HR right now. What do you think about it? How does, how does it? How does it? How do you react to it? Yeah, I mean, from a, from the, from broadly speaking, HR, I I'm not sure I fully understand it because I've never worked in a very large organization, so I don't really deeply understand how HR gets in the way. I I have you know a sense, you know, everybody talks about it, and 
obviously we work with a lot of um, large organizations so i i you know i have a basic idea of what they do but i don't think i've ever really personally experienced that frustration and, and that need for hr to be more uh, to, to get out of the way more so it doesn't instantly make that much sense to me for broadly speaking for hr but more because i don't really have the personal experience of it um but i think the way i understand it more and, and it makes sense to me I, i'm not sure what it means in the flow of work because to me the hr stuff it, it feels like it just means it, it needs to be invisible it needs to be like frictionless it's stuff that you just don't want to happen don't you don't want it to bother you you don't want to be in the way of doing your actual job so it's quite different to me in terms of you know if we, if we just look, look back to slack right what we're talking about there is a communications tool that has become a destination for work and instead of email becoming a frustration and email being the communication tool that you use to collaborate with your colleagues or to work with your clients or whatever um slack is a place that truly puts the communication in the flow of the work that you're doing. So I don't quite understand the analogy for HR, actually. I, I kind of get it more in terms of HR needs to be invisible. HR needs to do what it does without it being really noticeable for the employee. It needs to be frictionless HR, maybe is a better way to put it. I don't know. Um, so I don't quite see it in the flow of work the way that we kind of think about Slack has become... Um, a communication tool that fits seamlessly into the flow of the work that you're you're doing um so that's for the hr side i mean for l d it does actually make a lot more sense but maybe i'll let you kind of comment on the hr side of things first yeah I, well i think i think that i mean the way i understand it is um well so i think about it more broadly i think we think a lot about and i think i think th this is what i understood from talking to josh more better than i had in some of his writing is that like you have an employee base that's extremely strained and stressed in terms of above all else time and attention. What are they being asked to pay attention to? How much time? They, they, you know, there are just extraordinary demands coming at them from a lot of different directions and no single person, no manager, you know, no colleague has a sense of what everybody is kind of facing because it's coming from all kinds of different parts of the organization. In that context, if you are being asked to spend multiple hours on some kind of a compliance training or, or whatever, some kind of something that feels like a box ticking exercise of whatever kind. Um, it, ta it takes you, it not, not only does it take you out of the flow of work, but it creates this sort of, it creates a sort of sense of animosity or, or a sense of like not being heard or, 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 or not, you know, not being understood by the organization that like, in the midst of trying to kind of navigate this great sea of complex things and, and this bombardment of information and communication, you're now being having to add on something else, which feels utterly right, right, um, pointless. And or or you're having to just navigate some extremely decrepit and old system that just makes no sense. And you're having to like a lot of it is like you're like plugins and what you know IT nightmares and whatever. So I think there's a basic level at which it's like kind of it's about invisibility, but it's more about just like being a part of a seamless user experience, you know, really sort of using design thinking and that kind of stuff to eliminate anything unnecessary to make whatever is necessary as as effortless and and as clean and as clear as possible. So right. that's at the basic HR level. But I but I think that there's a bigger, you know, what I started thinking about in talking to Josh is that actually, and when you think about Slack, 
the flow of work actually is a, is a bigger concept that, it, and I think this is where we're going to talk about learning, is like part of the flow of work, part the, the defining feature of my workday is that I'm collaborating on a team with other people. And so when we talk about learning, one of the things that learning has done, I think, for a long time that has taken people out of the flow of work, it is, has, is it removes people from those teams or it removes people from collaborative activity altogether, sends them to an LMS where they're back on their own. And maybe they're getting relevant content or maybe not, but they're definitely not, it's not in the flow, the collaborative flow of work. If they're not doing it with the people either who they work with or with new people in some kind of a collaborative way. So that when I first heard learning the flow of work, uh, I was like, oh, gosh, this is just like a code word for performance support where like all learning is like micro learning has to be delivered right at the on your, you know, inside Slack in our case. Right. It would be like all learning is inside Slack. But actually, I don't think that's what Josh means. I mean, that's part of it. And that's definitely important. The performance support does move into the flow of work better. But I think that concept actually has room in it for a bigger conception of learning that's much more effective and is in the flow of work, but does not mean that everything is happening exactly where all your other work is happening from a kind of technical standpoint, right. that, that there is room for collaborative. And, and in fact, not just room for it, it demands it because that is how work actually happens. Right, right, right. Completely, yeah, yeah. And, and that's where it makes sense to me in, in learning. I think maybe I just don't know enough about kind of broader HR and, and, and how it's applied in that world in that context and, and in very large organizations we need to talk to our hr people tim they should start making you tick more boxes it sounds like you don't have enough suffering <laughs> well, you know, this is the beauty of starting your own company right um yeah um so yeah I, I can't i don't think i can comment enough on the on the h on the hr world i think the one thing that does confuse me about it though and probably just my ignorance about hr is that for communication i'm not and i'm not just talking about the technology integrating into ie like the technology that you use i am talking about into slack just happens to be that good and, and that central that it becomes the place that you do work but it's I, I am talking about that broad sense of the communication becomes a seamless part the digital communication instead mm. of being email which was a separate kind of task that you did has become seamlessly integrated into your general flow of a project right and and I think and I, and, I, and that and that makes sense to me for learning too. Like, I, and I think it's really important actually. I think that learning needs to happen much more in the flow of, and and be. I'm, I'm going to stop using that term, but be much more closely connected to the actual work that you're doing, whether that's with the people that you're doing that work or in, in terms of the actual challenges that you face. I think they're the two kind of aspects yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, so I, I completely get that, but. And, and I can see how, like, like Slack as a communications tool, the right kind of learning can, can actually enhance the way that you work while you're working, you know, as, as part of your work. There are certain ways you can learn that can actually enhance your productivity, right? HR, and I'm sure, you know, Josh could school me on this because I really don't know, know it at all. But I struggle to think how HR, like, and I think of the standard functions of HR, and again, this is probably my ignorance of the HR function, but, you know, I know compensation and benefits and, and recruitment and, and um, maybe compliance, health and safety, I don't know. Um, I struggle to feel how even that in the flow of work can enhance the, your productivity. I don't, I, don't, mm. I, I can see how no, it I gets mean, out of your way. Think, think, let's think. Productivity by getting yeah. out of your way, but not, uh, it, that's a negative, right? That's like removing a negative. Can it actually enhance? Can it like, 
provide a positive. I'm not sure if I'm making sense, but I see like how learning can actually not just removing a negative, i.e., oh, I've got to go learn, so that's taken me away from my le- work. If you get learning right and it's kind of with your team, it can actually help your team solve the problems, for example. So it's positively influencing the work that you do. Can HR in the flow of work do that? Well, I think, I mean, just take one example, like recruitment, for example, right? So you, you need somebody new for your team. You know, you need you need to interact with HR to help you find that person. Like, how quickly are they getting you a list of candidates? How good are those candidates? How, like, how much have they been, you know, how, where are you seeing, like, where are you physically actually looking at resumes and the list of candidates? And, and how is that data coming in? And how are you comparing, you know? So I could imagine, you know, like a much, a much, and, and I think places like Workday, obviously, and other HR tools are, are very much doing this, right? But like, you know, you could imagine how, like, like a better, a, ver, a very kind of user-centric and team-centric approach to recruiting could make what could otherwise be a very painful experience for you as a manager or as a team member um, much easier. Like, okay, oh, well, we have this, or, and especially when you need somebody like on a slightly temporary basis, because like, okay, we have a six-month project and we need a front-end designer. We want somebody from within the organization. How do we find them? You know, like how easy is that? How how is it is it integrated into the tools that you're using? Are you having to like? Are you getting the right stuff from you know? So, I think, and then probably is the same thing for you know. You guys don't have to worry about that as much in the UK, but like, enrollment around health insurance is extremely horrifying here, <laughs> and then and a lot of times it's just utterly baffling and it's very important to employees and it's very important you know it's important to your family you have to understand this stuff but it is not easy and and it and you know how hr making that easier making it you know more integrated in the place where you're already working that kind of thing you know is is going to drive productivity is going to drive and i think that that point that josh makes that like that close tie between productivity and engagement is really is really very interesting that like the least the, the 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 way you kill engagement the most is by killing is like when you are moving people away from the real work that they want to actually be doing and getting something done that's the number one engagement killer and i think right that's a really uh, uh that's actually probably really just an extraordinary insight it seems so basic but it it's a i think for a lot of times learning in hr we've had a trouble kind of figuring out and I said that kind of in the interview, like, what is the North Star? What are we kind of guiding towards in terms of employee experience? And I think a lot of times HR measures themselves on something like retention, which is like is a way of measuring that you aren't pissing people off enough to make them quit, basically, which is sort of not which is OK. And of course, you don't you, you want good retention numbers, but it isn't there's not like a pot. And, and that, you know, it's important to the CEO and whatever. But it's not like a positive thing that's saying, like, here's how what we're doing is really driving business results. And productivity is a much better gauge of that. Um, And it's a much better lens for for learning, too. It's like if we're going to pull people out of there. And I guess this is the other thing is like and I don't think when Josh says learning in the flow of work, I don't think he means and I know for a fact that he doesn't mean that you never pull people out of out of their day job, that they're just always at the grindstone working, that you never have, for example, like an offsite where they learn something or that, you know, send them to a digital platform where they're learning something that's not directly 
immediately applicable to their daily work. Sure, sure. It's unnecessarily doing that. It's right. doing that where it has a negative impact because I don't think, you know, yeah, yeah, of course. There's no question. Right. But well, actually, when I first heard it, I wasn't sure. <laughs> so, yeah, but I think there's no question in his mind that if you're bringing someone to an offsite and they're learning something that's just incredibly powerful and is going to shift the way they see the world and whatever, right. then that's definitely in the flow of work. Um, I think there are some technology vendors and people in the learning space who would like it to be huh? But <laughs> I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean that. Yeah. I mean, no, you know, you, you've got to be pretty, even though we're on the digital side of like, if you want to divide learning into kind of digital and face-to-face, -face, right, we're on the digital side of it. I'm never going to deny the fact that, you know, face-to-face -face learning has incredible power. I've been a teacher. I've done it. You know, I know how good it can be. So you'd be a fool to kind of just suggest that all learning should happen only while people are doing their jobs and they should never leave their job to do learning that doesn't make sense but taking someone away from their job to do perhaps a compliance based thing or or, or making it longer and more painful than it needs to be so that that um and this is i guess i guess is a comparable to what you're talking about in the hr world you know so making that as seamless and as simple and as uh, as integrated with the rest of your work so you can do it quickly and it takes you away from your main work for a minimal uh, amount of time but the other thing i'd like to talk about is like the not just the the reducing the the pain and kind of reducing the friction angle to this but what about the the more positive angle you know so like how can you make learning and learning that actually it's not just taking you away from your work it's enhancing what you do in your job it's helping you actually solve problems what what does that kind of learning look like because i mean we i mean i think mostly what we're talking about is the is it's you know is that that making things less um, painful and and reducing that friction but what about the flip side the positive yeah. side to it well i mean i think our i mean our argument would be two things one the number one thing would be meaningful connection to people inside the organization either who you work with or who know things or have insights that will help you in your work and you know creating especially digital learning that, that results in meaningful conversation and meaningful connections at scale across large organizations is not, is not easy. But when it is done well, it does have that impact of saying, wow, I have, my network is stronger. I've got great ideas from around the world that I didn't have before. I got inspired to think about a problem differently. I'm, you know, I now have somebody who I know has, is working on a similar issue that I can talk to. Um, and and just sort of a sense of like being a, when you're in a large organization, you you can often hear these large numbers like oh wow there's 175,000 people in this company but who are they and where are they and you know really you don't know you know so you don't know it's it's you can feel very anonymous inside that large mass. Learning can help to alleviate that by creating that sense of connectivity and giving you a window and transparency into how other parts of the organization and other teams are are thinking. Um, so that's one thing. And I think the other thing, you know, and it's, it is about the kind when you're asking someone to come to a learning platform or to a learning experience. And I'm going to talk like, you know, I, I agree with you on face to face, but just leave that aside for a second. But when you're coming to a digital platform and you want someone to do something digitally, it has to be good, you know, and, it, and, by, and the con by that, I mean, the content, the content has to be you have to have taken that investment of their time seriously, which means saying, like, I'm asking you to move away from your work 
and to come look at something that's that's specifically educational or specifically has a learning orientation. And I value your time so much that I have invested serious time, creative energy, and resources into making this content really awesome because I know how valuable your time is. So when you move across to some learning experience, you you feel, and that means like you hear a good story, you feel emotionally engaged, you know, it's visually interesting, something touches you, like you, you remember it later, it's something you want to share with your friends or go back to. Um, those two things to me are like the ultimate sign that a learning experience is um, you know, is inside the flow of work or, you know, another way to put it is respecting the time and attention of users and giving them something of extraordinary value that they're going to be able to take back into their work and be more productive and thus more engaged. Yeah. What, what do you think about this idea? Like Nick Shackleton Jones, um, used to be a BP, but, um, Nick, he spoke about this idea of resources and not courses. Right. And it's a kind of like something we've heard a lot about. He's a very interesting guy. He's doing lots of interesting stuff about learning. He's quite a, you know, I think he's, you know, really thinks about it quite deeply, but I think often when I think about that, well, first of all, you know, what do you think about the idea that you should just be able to find a resource that answers an instant need, which is kind of the direction that a lot of learning has gone in. Is that, is that all that learning should be learning should just be kind of like an enhanced google you know like you can search for it and you'll find instead of like a, an article you'll find some learning content within your um within your learning experience platform that answers your question is that is that where learning should be i mean it's it's half of where learning should be you know it should be very good at that and it should make sure those resources are real and it should be personalized i think something like what what nick is talking about is a is a bit of a pendulum swing it's a reaction to what what we meant by course five years ago or seven years ago and that was a squirm e-learning long click through voiceover painful experience you know it takes an hour you're clicking through stuff it's not interactive etc 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 and and the reaction against that kind of thing which by the way should be those should be thrown to the dustbin of history never to be seen again and i agree that most of those things are they do in an hour what you could really do in three five minute segments and you could do you know so i think that that reaction is true however there are all kinds of learning that don't fit into that model. So anything that requires collaboration, anything that requires a longer sequence of things that is designed by someone who knows the topic, that requires a teacher, and there are a lot of things that... Anything you when you don't know what the question is, which is a lot of... The right, time. exactly, right, right, which is <laughs> most learning. You know, most learning. A lot, of, I mean, yeah. sometimes in work you run into a question, you realize what it is, and you, can, you need to go learn in it. But when you're talking about learning something systematic, like, okay, I want to teach myself accounting, if I'm going to just... I don't even know what the questions are to ask, which is why there are accounting professors who design syllabus because they know how to layer concepts together. They, they, they know what an end goal is that I couldn't possibly imagine or even understand yet because I haven't learned it. Um, so that means that there's still there has to be room and space for instructional design, for longer sequences of learning, et cetera, something that you might call a course. But I think what what 
you have to be careful of as an L&D department is basically for every extra five or 10 minutes you're asking of someone's attention, you have to make sure every single one of those minutes is worth it. So that instructional design has to be tight, the content has to be good, the interaction has to be meaningful, it has to fit seamlessly across devices. No one should have to actually sit down and do it in an hour at a time. They should be able to come in and out on multiple devices and so on. Um, but exactly the same thing applies for for resources, for you know, for, for, for that idea of learning where you're searching, you, you have a particular challenge and you, you know, you, you, you need the answer now and you can go to your learning experience platform and find that piece of content instantly in the flow of work. If that piece of content you get to, it's arguable it's doubly annoying if, because the intention, the, the, it's sold to you as a place where you can go and find an answer for particular challenges that you face in the work in the moment of you doing that work. It's doubly annoying if when you get there, that piece of content is useless, if it doesn't give you the information you need. And I think that that's actually one of the biggest challenges with that whole idea of that, that, that very strict interpretation of learning in the flow of work, i.e., you know, you just go find that piece of content and, and it gives you the answer that you need in that moment. Setting aside the whole very important point that you've got to know the question in the first place, which I think for more, the majority of learning should be the kind of learning where you don't even know the question in the first place. Otherwise, we're not really going anywhere. You're just kind of, you know, you're not really developing. You're not developing the agility to solve novel problems. You're not really developing the capabilities to, to adapt as things change in the real world. Um, but you know, leaving that. Leaving well, you're not that. changing. You're not. You're definitely not going to change your perspective. And that. And so much of learning is about like, I had. I thought the world worked this way. I went through this crazy experience. I met these people. I heard this stuff, and I realized that I was looking at the world the wrong way. And now I see it differently. And I'm approaching problems differently, and so on. That kind of thing, which which is what we would call like an educational experience. It's not going to happen in three minutes with a YouTube video. You, but you can learn a lot of tactical things. I do think, though, you know, for the learning experience platforms, and you point at this, it's like, are you better than Google or not? Because right. ultimately, that's what it is. Right. Because if they come to the LEP and it, and they don't get it, then they're going to go to Google, and they and Google's good. You know, obviously, <laughs> very good. <laughs> Google and YouTube is pretty good. Uh, I mean, you can learn a lot. You know, for yeah. particular just stuff where you know the question, and it's like a, I think you know, it's very good for skills. You know, like. I use it all the time for completely non-work related stuff, but like, you know, you know, if you want to learn how to like build a boat on YouTube, there's a lot of good videos that can teach you the intricate step-by-step -step skills, instructional skills of how to build that boat. Um, but I think, you know, the, but that's, that's, that's my, that was what I was saying, you know, that I think that these learning experience platforms that they, they really need to have great content underneath them. Otherwise, you, you, your, your, that, that, that point about respecting people's attention in the work is, is, uh, yeah, it's completely being missed. You're, you're, you're putting learning in the flow of work, but then, your, your, the end thing that people get to in that, in that flow is not helpful. It's just going to double frustration mm -hmm. and ultimately lead to people dropping those tools. Yeah. And there's actually a very simple way to measure that. If you're an L and D person, is it working as a place? It's like. Is you should is is the you know average time spent by a user going up or down, right? Not not in aggregate because you might be able to get you know new people constantly kind of coming in and having experience, but over time are, are they coming in? Is the number does does the number look like 
an uphill mountain going from left to right, going higher and higher? Or does it go the other way? Does it start high and kind of gradually diminish over time? And if you're looking at it on a per user's perspective, it should, at a minimum, you know, be trending upwards. Obviously, it's going to come up and down. People are going to use it at different moments at different times. But like, that's a simple and because, you know, my usage of Google, for example, trends upwards. There's no question. For the last 10 years, it's constantly trended upwards, at least a little bit, I'm sure, you know, or, or stayed very, very, very steady because I use it probably. I mean, if you include maps and other things, I use it probably, I have no idea how many times I use it every day. A lot. Probably 50 times a day. Maybe more, maybe less. I don't know. But probably Google could tell me more. <laughs> and the same thing should be true for a learning experience platform if it's really delivering that. Mm. Um, so, I, in, in, enough of ragging on the learning experience platforms. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> we always end up doing that. Yeah. Um, so, so, we talked about, like, you know, learning in the flow of work from, you know, this idea of connecting people more and, and connecting people to content. And, and when we talk about content, we mean like, you know, like we talk about like this inspiring content that's sequenced in a right way that gives people or, or, or leads people to novel ideas and for poses interesting questions that helps them think of new questions and, and new answers themselves. But I think that the, one of the interesting things about um, this idea of learning in the flow of work is that I think, and it's, and it's reflected in the way that we approach a lot of our learning development is that I think there's always somebody in an organization, especially a big organization, who has the answers that other people are looking for, that other people are struggling for. And I think that part of learning in the flow of work is making those connections and making not just the connections directly in the learning, but bringing the, that experience directly into the learning as well. And it's something that we always do in, in, the, in the learning design is to seek out those experts, find those experts, get their voice, capture them in any way that we can, typically on video, but then enable people to be able to a much broader um, population to be able to experience that knowledge, but then also to challenge it and to help that person think about things in a new way as well. So it's, it's, not, it's not just that finding those people and capturing their knowledge, it's finding those people, capturing the knowledge and then allowing other people to challenge it and kind of connect with each other and with that person as well. And I think that's where that's where you kind of get to that kind of like we see as kind of like the holy grail of learning where if we've designed a really good program and you get to kind of the discussion forums and the discussion kind of debate sections within a learning experience and they've experienced all that kind of knowledge and then you see people coming up with new ideas and recommending other people to go and talk to somebody else or saying, well, I can help you with this challenge. And you, instead of learning, becoming about getting better at a thing, getting better at collaboration or getting better at marketing or whatever, it becomes about those connections and that learning immediately resulting in new opportunities in work or, or new ways of people working together or just a new connection like somebody who you didn't know can help you that can help you now and i think that's what we mean by kind yeah, of learning the flow of work. i mean and just thinking about that first point you're making about kind of expertise and knowledge inside organizations you know i think this is something organizations have been struggling with forever and over the last 10 years there's been a like a, a wide variety of different ways of solving that like a lot of it is about like you know kind of Quora type things like question and answer type forums where you can, you know, find an expert and go talk to them. And what, what I, we've seen with those is that they can be quickly overwhelming for the work experience of those experts if they're not, you know, it, it, and they can be very distracting and that like a lot of things end up coming into those 
platforms that aren't quite relevant and, and then the SMEs get overwhelmed and kind of want to move away from it. So there's this balance that I think we're still working on too of trying to find like when you know, first finding the experts, and oftentimes it's who you think it is, but oftentimes it's not who you think it is. So for one thing, you need ways of, of tracking and finding expertise and influence in the organization. Then once you find those individuals, like how can you capture content, stories, insights from them and package them in such a way that they can scale and create conversation, create dialogue and, and be a resource for people to use to help solve problems, but don't necessarily mean that those individual human beings have to be involved in 10,000 chats at the same time because you know you'll burn them out and, and we've seen them burn out you know at, at large organizations we know that someone who has like a defined expertise in a particular area that's a big problem spot for the team or for the organization can be very very quickly inundated and overwhelmed so respecting and balancing their productivity and their workforce and experience uh, is also is also quite important um, yeah so let's see See if we can tie it all together here. Um, well, I think this I, the whole idea of in the flow of work. I think it's really interesting. I think it's a a shift that we're seeing in lots of areas. You know, you're seeing it from stuff like Slack. I think you, and although I I personally can't speak to it very well, I think we're going to hear more from Josh about this. And I think that his ideas on it are incredibly interesting. And I think that fine tuning that idea in 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 learning. I think it, particularly that's our kind of area of interest is really what does that mean and i think that we kind of touched on a few of what mm -hmm. we think are the most important areas yeah. of that and i think i mean if we go back to something we were saying in the beginning about slack and about our own adoption of slack and we know this has happened and this happens all the time which is that it was easy right it just happened effortlessly because it came into our flow of work and we didn't even know how our flow of work happened and it helped us see it and it just did it and i think when you're thinking about hr in the flow of work or learning in the flow of work uh, when you get something that fits, when you get something that works with the way people are working, it is not painful. You don't need huge change management processes. You don't need to, you know, you don't need big sticks to beat it into people's head and force them to use it and so on and so forth. Because when you are working in the flow of work, it happens and it can have, and Slack is probably the best example of that, but, but we've seen it in learning too. And I think when, when we have engagement that work well, that's how it feels. People just start using it. They don't, they're not being, you know, uh, forced to use it. When that's not happening, there's an of initial course, communication yes. effort, right? But once that communication, once it, once the people know about it and first sign in, then it kind of takes off. And yeah, we, we, we see that. We see that a lot. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, fantastic acid test you know of like how in how in the flow of work is your application you know do people adopt it instantly or is there massive resistance and i think it's that's a really interesting point for people who are leading these change things you know you know it's 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 really hard because how do you know beforehand right and then once you've spent that money and you've made that investment you're kind of like well we've got to keep going but um, it's uh yeah i mean well i guess they can roll out smaller teams you know uh, try it with 100 people get 100 you know adopt the adoption for 100 people or so first or whatever but yeah i think that's a it's a really good test it's a really good way to well, see I think you, yeah you kind of think moment. about it like a you know like the vcs who were investing in slack it's not a hard invest it wasn't a hard investment three or four years ago because you could see their numbers and watch the adoption watch what happened when teams took on slack it just exploded you know and 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 just showed no sign of slackening yeah, oops that was actually not on purpose but um the, i mean that's not exactly going to always happen because these things are not necessarily you know slack is 
is positioning itself at the very, very center of your work life. And some of these things are more peripheral. You're not going to see them. But there should be something like that that you see in a good digital technology because that's what a digital technology looks like when it's successful. Like That's what the numbers look like. That's what adoption looks like. Um, so... Yeah, so that so there's a there's a data there is there's a data angle to test to make sure that you are uh, getting yourself deeper into the flow of work. So the sustained adoption as well, not just the one off. Yeah. You know, like the, right. the you know users have signed in. What's their adoption over a couple of months? Because you can guarantee that Slack with us to go back to the original right in the beginning. You know, we get those weekly reports even now. Every week, the, the, you know, the, the average per user, average um, messages per user is, is increasing week on week, all, all the time. So, yeah. Well Living done, here in the dead of summer. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think that wraps it up for today. And uh, next week or next, I keep saying next week like we do this every week, but we just don't. So next episode, we have a special guest lined up we're just working on the logistics of talking to her but she is a we'll keep it secret for now but she's a senior L&D professional at a very very large client so we'll start to hear from some folks in the actual L&D world uh, working on some of the biggest problems in organizational learning uh, and she is extremely fun and interesting so I'm looking forward to that conversation uh, cool yeah all right so and remember nomadic- uh- yeah, yeah, go, for, go it, on. Man. Do it. Close it down. Should I do it? All right. Yes. So uh, remember to check us out on Twitter at Nomadic Learn and go check out our blog at nomadiclearning.com. Actually, we've got a whole new site coming soon. It's going to feature all our excellent blog posts. Yeah, and check out our latest blog post on the third space by uh, by James, our engineer, which is uh, super interesting. So yeah, go go check us out. And we uh, look forward to the next episode. Yeah, and I'll probably be talking to you on Slack in the next... 45 seconds or so, Tim.